Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. My guest this episode is Nick Mamadis, an author and editor at Haikasoru, which publishes translated Japanese science fiction. Nick is here speaking entirely for himself tonight. Nick's most recent book is The Necronomicon, a collection of short Lovecraftian fiction. He has strong and informative opinions about the business of publishing, many of them collected in his book Starve Better, and also the craft of writing. For this episode, we're going to be talking about short stories. We're going to focus specifically on three stories, The Red Tower by Thomas Ligotti, Rachel Swirsky's If You Were a Dinosaur, My Love, and Nick's own We Never Sleep, which is now available in the mammoth book of Dieselplunk. I will have links to the first two in the show notes for those of you who want to read them and then come back. And Nick, maybe you could start by letting us know a little bit about your relationship with sci-fi fantasy, how you got into it, why you like short stories, and then we can talk about these three stories. Well, I got into science fiction the same way every single human being you'll ever talk to does. When I was a kid, I was handed some. And that is everyone's story. The only people who are interesting because of that event is people who come back to science fiction as adults or who stick with it for their entire lives. So I'm one of the people who came back to it uh, as an adult. See, I never sampled anything else. I just Uh, stuck with it and and pretended that there is no other writing out there. But you came back to it. Because in my mind, science fiction, fantasy, and horror are so concept-driven. And so it's a very uh, capacious set of genres and that I can do all these different things and please all these different people. Um, but I'm primarily interested in the short story, I guess, because I'm interested in the concept. Now, short stories, so you like the concept. I know I've also seen you make various comments uh, on Twitter about things like minimal scene breaks and sorts of languages. I, are you one of the people who has issues with single sentences, final paragraph? Oh, yes, I do. Oh, my God, yes. I mean, I don't want to take you too far down that rabbit hole. Well, I guess I'm both a reactionary and a postmodernist in that I like to see completed actions, like Aristotelian drama, you know, just up, rising action, a climax, a, you know, reversal, denouement, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I also like the utter destruction of narrative inside a story, inside a, or inside a fiction, you could even call it a story, where there, it might be an artifact, like a shopping list, or it might uh, undermine itself either linguistically or narratively. So either one of those is fine, but the, the kind of half-stepping where we're using some lyrical language but also using scene breaks because we can't write a simple sentence of transition, where we have only a few tools in our box, only a few ways to generate emotional responses, and one obvious way is uh, you know, a single sentence or even a single-word paragraph to, to highlight the importance of something or other mm-hmm. is, is a very easy one to learn. I'm trying to wrap my head around some of the things that you've mentioned. You mentioned being interested in some of the postmodern devices and having things that are not part of the story show up in the story, shopping lists. Um, or actually compi- comprising the story. Okay, so an entire story that is simply... That is a shopping list, or, ship- or an interview. Okay. Or, or liner notes of a record album, you know, that sort of thing. I think that I've seen those a few times and always been kind of intrigued by the concept and yet never never all that impressed by the execution. But I will have to keep my eye open. I've, t- I've so definitely you're, not read all that much short fiction. So I'm a reactionary and a postmodernist. You're just a reactionary, basically. I think I am mostly a reactionary. <laughs> I, I find myself often feeling with short stories that there's an art to ending at the right time. Mm-hmm. I can think of novels and even some novellas that I've read and I've been 
grateful to have finished them. And I think much more often with a short story, I'm glad that it ended. I'm glad that it didn't try to stretch any further. Mm. That the the impact worked on me, the effect worked on me, the story has been told, and I liked that. And I felt like if it went much further, then, then loose ends would start becoming more obvious, or the way the sort of chinks in the world or the concept would would start to appear. Yeah. Um, so it seems like ending on time seems to be an appropriate art for short stories. Or even ending a little early. Leave that ragged edge. Okay. A story can be worth rereading. If you don't walk away quite satisfied, but pretty satisfied, you may even want to reread it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, a great story to me is a story that I'll reread, and I don't reread very much. Or you can call it a story that's worth reprinting. Because certainly the people who read the U.S. best science fiction in those, mag- in those anthologies often also have already read a lot of the stories in Asimov's science fiction or Strange Horizons or wherever. Right. So it has to be something that makes a story worth revisiting. And often if things are too tightly wound up, there's, there's no reason to reread it again. Like many crime stories, many mystery stories, I should say, once the solution is clear... If there's nothing else about the story, a character, uh, the grotesque nature of the murder or crime, uh, the, the pleasant or interesting setting, then why would I read a story again? Why would I read a horror story again if I know that someone's going to die at the end or some, somebody's a werewolf or that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. So it's much less about the revelation and more whatever other hooks I have into the story. Is that often for you concept? Sometimes it's concept, but sometimes it's the denouement, right? The denouement is the falling action. And denouement is a French word, and it means to unknot. Similarly, we were just talking about the idea of tying up loose ends. But the denouement says to untie something, to unknot something. And what you're unknotting is that emotional tension created by the story itself, by the worry or anxiety you have over the characters, or by the hope you have that they'll succeed on some level, uh, without succeeding on some you know, ultra triumphant level. Mm-hmm. Imagine the movie Star Wars. If at the end of the first movie, Star Wars, uh, the Death Star blows up, and you see Darth Vader's head sort of floating by because Luke Skywalker's killed him too. And then he flies down and he's made the king of all the universe. And right. has sex with him. You know, and his aunt and uncle come back to life somehow. And, and all the great things happen. Then it's not as satisfying. That explosion of the Death Star and then the little ceremony. The little sort of half-ass ceremony, actually. Right. Oh, and imagine if it ends really, you, it ends with the Death Star exploding and then you have the credits. Too soon, right? There is an art to ending. And it, come, and it comes again to this question of the single sentence paragraph, especially as the last sentence, mm-hmm. especially as the last sentence, which recapitulates the title, <laughs> <laughs> which is everyone's cheap trick. So let's take one that you recommended that you quite like, The Red Tower by Thomas Ligotti, which I have to admit, I read and thought it was kind of interesting, but never felt like it was moving enough for me to, it wasn't clear to me why it went as far as it did or or why it stopped when it did certainly i didn't feel as though there was a final lesson being being issued at the end so what are some of the things that that you definitely no fucking lesson there that's for sure <laughs> what do you like about the red tower i like the mood for those who don't know and haven't read it we'll just briefly cover it is a narrator describing a factory that makes novelty items and the novelty items are not really uh the sort of item you'd want in your house and there's some sort of conflict between this red tower, this factory, and the landscape around it, which leads to uh, the items being created getting even more weird, more grotesque, more baroque as time goes on. And finally, seemingly, perhaps the uh, factory is out of business. And uh, Legati's a master of mood. You don't read Legati for a rock'em sock'em plot. You don't read a Legati to feel good about yourself. 
certainly he, he, he's a horror writer and he'll even tell you that he's one of the only horror writers around and most of the horror writers are only writing thrillers with horrific elements or horrific interludes and a thriller makes you feel good about yourself a stephen king novel makes you feel good about yourself you identify with the hero even if he's stephen king and uh, there are some great costs paid to vanquish an evil or deal with an evil and then at the end let's say in the end of Tommy knockers there was a couple of kids playing with gi joes after all the terrible things about the alien invasion people losing their teeth all this stuff Mm-hmm. So, so the idea is that, oh, middle-class life continues. Or, and these are books I like, or the Kennedy one. Right. The guy who saves Kennedy from being assassinated goes back to his own time, and of course, the world's gone to shit. There was a nuclear exchange, you know, the worst possible set of outcomes for Kennedy surviving that day in Dallas. And the, the, the lesson, really, or the theme is that as terrible as things were, like the Vietnam War, 9-11, and whatnot, it could have gotten worse. We're still <laughs> in the best of all possible worlds. And Ligotti does not say that you're in the best of all possible worlds. He says that you may well be in one of the worst possible worlds, but not the worst, maybe just one of the worst. And it can always get worse. Okay. But he does it in a way that's so playful and so humorous. I find Ligotti to be very funny. I don't know if Ligotti himself laughs at his uh, work. I suspect he might to the point that he can laugh, to the extent that he can laugh at all. I'm reminded of Kafka, who uh, you know writes these dark, dark stories, and during his life always thought that he was writing comedy. I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at his short stories, look at like, The Hunger mm-hmm. Artist. It's a famous story you can find online very easily. It's a wind-up and a punchline. It's designed, it's structured exactly like a joke, a long joke. And Red Tower isn't quite a joke. It's more like a Lenny Bruce routine observational comedy about this thing that you don't want to observe. Um, but I find it very compelling, and I find it very useful as a tool when I teach students, because uh, I have a couple of classes here and there, here in Berkeley, uh, litreactor.com. I teach the MFA program. And I could show this to students who are very into science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and ask them what the plot is. I had trouble with that. That was yeah. one of the reasons I had trouble with, with the story. I mean, there is, to some extent, the the tower, I mean, the tower changes, and mm-hmm. the tower changes in relation to the landscape. And there is also a person who is observing the tower, and we get some revelation about that in the final paragraph or two, um, which I think... I think that, I don't know, where is the plot? You just described it, that's it. There you go. That's the plot. The plot doesn't have to have action, necessarily. Gustav Freytag, the dramatist, drew this triangle once, and you have this line that goes up, that's rising action, a line that comes down, that's the falling action. Then you have the bottom line, because there's a triangle. It's not just an angle. And the, tri- the bottom line is revelations. So with every action or every change, every reversal in the story, there should be some revelation about the character or about the setting. Okay. Theme. So you can imagine Lagani's triangle being very narrow, but very long. So it has a very long bottom line and a very blunted top two line. Mm-hmm. So it's all about revelation. So it's all about things you don't know, that now you know, and you can't stop thinking about it. And what I find, I don't really reread stories very often, but what I found is very frequently, when I return to the story, and I return to it three or four times a year when I teach it, is that I always have forgotten one or two of the weird toys. Mm-hmm. So, so it's always new to me. Like, oh, that, yeah, oh, I remember that now. Because I'm so in love with the mood of the story and with the sense of dread and nervous laughter that it creates. The details don't stick in my mind. One or two do. Then each time, because I've changed, then something else sticks in my mind. So before I was a father, I remembered certain toys, certain novelty items. Now that I am a father, I tend to remember the ones that my kid might have played with. Right. You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's a story that grows with me. You know, it tells me about me. So I think that's pretty compelling. So I'd recommend reading the story again once a day for a week and then we'll get back to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think also I really like plot and yeah. and sort of plot that is driven by characters doing things. External, external activities to yeah. reach some goal. Yeah. Because the, the Red Tower, the Red Tower is the protagonist. The narrator is not the protagonist. 
Right. He's like the, he's like the Watson or the Nick Carraway character looking at Holmes or looking at the Great Gatsby. And in fact, sort of fade. It was interesting to me right at the at the end when the narrator sort of talks about how much time they're spending thinking about the tower and and in what ways they've gotten this information and things. As the narrator becomes more intrusive, the narrator also becomes more insignificant. Yes. And I like that kind of thing. Like we were talking about Stephen King before. One of my favorite Stephen King novels is From a Buickate. And if you go to a Stephen King place, like a horror convention or a Stephen King bulletin board, or you're talking with Stephen King fans, you say, oh, From a Buickate, that's my favorite. You'll get weird looks. Okay. You know, Stephen King has a lot of haunted cars, a lot of haunted things. And From a Buickate has like this Buickate that is haunted or is from another universe. But then they sort of put it in the garage and just forget about it, which I think is amazing. Because what would you do? If you had a crazy haunted Buick and you're just like a normal person, you're not like the world's greatest scientist, you're not the Pope, what mm-hmm. are you going to do? Life's got to go on. Yeah. So while in most Stephen King's novels, life goes on after you've earned the fact that life goes on, you've earned your middle-class status, this one you kind of have to sort of push away the bad, weird thing that you can't explain. You say, okay, well, I can't explain that, but I can explain enough things. I can explain how peanut butter gets into my mouth by putting my spoon in the jar, you know? And that's what you got to live your life with. Okay. So I thought that was very interesting. And I think the Red Tower has that, so the guy can't stop thinking about the Red Tower. Right. So it has that obsessive element as well. Mm-hmm. Let's move on then to If You Were a Dinosaur, My Love by Rachel Swirsky, which won the Nebula, I want to say two years ago. Was it last year? And was a Hugo Award nominee. The story's quite short. So you stop your podcast. It's 1,500 words, I think. Just read it real quick. Come on back. I normally don't uh, indulge people who worry about spoilers, but it's so short, you can just do it and come on back. Sort of loosely structured around if you give a mouse a cookie in that there's one thing and then another and then another, and it begins if you were a dinosaur, you would be a T-Rex, and goes through telling a possible relationship with, with this dinosaur and a possible Broadway tour and cloning new dinosaurs, so there are lots of interesting concepts in it. I should say, this is a story I did not like, However, I do like Rachel Swirsky's fiction generally. I've published some of her fiction. Um, she appeared in a Hakusura anthology called The uh, Future's, ja- uh, Future's Japanese, despite not being about the future. So that's how good she is. Um, but I didn't like this story for a number of reasons, most of which having to do, and I also, why I didn't like it, I think explains its popularity, which is sort of a, a bad uh, go, place for me to be. Go yeah. on, Mr. Mr. Elitist. <laughs> Mr. Far Too Good for the Rest of Us. Go on. Basically, it's a meme. It is designed to be an internet meme. The uh, If you give a mouse a cookie thing you're talking about, it's called anaphora, the idea of repetition of first lines. It's very common in poetry. The dinosaur, you know, how many memes have you seen about dinosaurs or jokes about dinosaurs online? Mm-hmm. It's so short, so it's easy to read, not just in one sitting, but in one track of your thumb on the phone. I did, in fact, read it on the phone, I think, while trying to get the younger daughter to sleep. Mm-hmm. And you probably moved your thumb once, mm-hmm. maybe twice, depending on the size of your thumb. I'm presuming you're a large thumb man like myself, Jonah. And so it was designed to be consumed very rapidly and to push you through the story. And the emotion at the end, I found quite manipulative. I'm reminded of like Dickens, you know, and killing off Little Nell and uh, Oscar Wilde saying that, uh, you know, like a Little Nell die, you know, you just have to laugh. And uh, interesting thing, the story's being very controversial. I know you want to stay away from scene and controversy stuff, but it was controversial on some level in that it was easy to misread. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, the one of the minor controversies around it is that ultimately the, the my love, the titular love, is a man, I presume a man, maybe not, uh, it's been a while, who has been beaten up by people in a bar right. and is a, uh, in the hospital. And uh, the love, uh, who is reciting the, the narrator, is contemplating what would have happened had 
the lever been a dinosaur and was able to better, you know, fight off these attackers. And there's sort of this retrograde right wing uh, reading of the story that says that this is an anti working class story because who else would be in a bar drinking gin, the gin soaked bar goers, and who would beat up somebody, but not for working class people? Which is odd to me because, you know, I'm from the working class. My father was a longshoreman, my mother, you know, worked in grocery stores. My parents are from immigrant families. My father's an immigrant. I was probably the first person to go and complete college in my immediate family. All my cousins, you know, they're slowly crawling into college now or, you know, went back to it after years of working in restaurants. And not once have any of us gotten soaked on gin <laughs> and beaten anybody up. Nor do we know anybody who this has happened to. But it was compelling, you know, to, to hear this argument. Because one, I think there's an error in the story. The error in the story that it's too superficial. It's not, you know, it's not specific enough. It tries to be universal. The uh, attackers share all these insults that are sort of almost contradictory insults. Right. Um, so it could be anything. But if it could be anything, then you say to the reader, well, you pick. Right. And then you can't really complain if somebody picks, well, I'm going to pick the one that makes you, Roger, look bad. Mm -hmm. you know? And this is a, a particular case of a common problem. I see this a lot in my student writing and that kind of thing. That students try to uh, write an average person. An average person having an average day. But when an average person has an average day, we have no, we don't care. And of course, we also get it wrong. The presumption in my mostly American students is that the average person is an American man. Right. I, I feel like the average the average person having the average day is either so vague as to be kind of meaningless or needs enough specifics to no longer be a single average person. Right. Because the actual average person would be a Chinese woman, given just given demographics. A Chinese woman around the age of 28 who does not have the internet. And there are very few stories about the average person that has this character in it as the, as the, as the main character. Mm -hmm. But they have this sort of, you know, like a, it's a basically white supremacy. It's the, you have a white person who has a middle-class job. And often they're eating their toast, then they go off in their car, and they're fuming about something rather than their car, then they encounter some monster or an alien or whatnot. And I see this all the time. I see this all the time in the slush when I was at Clark's World. And it's, it's, we have impulse of trying to be average, but you can't be average. You have to have some real specifics. The character is built on specifics. Mm -hmm. Now, if the Red Tower was a story about, oh, these really crazy things that are coming out of the Red Tower that I can't even talk about, the story would be terrible. Like, God, you have to take the chance and say, this rock that leaves a stain, no matter where you put it, and this little toy that makes a sound like this, <sighs> he's got to say, I'm crazy enough, I'm weird enough, I'm creative enough to make these specific things that'll get under your skin. Right. Swirsky says, eh, something happened, it was bad. Mm -hmm. Now, there are specifics in it, there's specifics about the, uh, the dress the narrator imagines wearing, that uh, is reminiscent of other elements of the story. So the narrator's got specifics, but the person in the bed who was, was to be the notional dinosaur is uh, kind of a blank slate, and right. the attackers are a blank slate, and the circumstances are a blank slate, which is useful if it's a meme. That's fair. That's so, that so useful if it's a story. So I found the story kind of manipulative. Having said that, I certainly defend the story against all this right-wing attacks against it. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not really a story, because only a vignette, or it shouldn't be in the hero winner, because it wasn't science fiction, and it was cheating, you know, it wasn't cheating, you got on the ballot because people like that kind of thing. I mean, if you want to win a Hugo Award or get nominated, write a story with some obvious tropes, like a dinosaur or a spaceship or a ray gun, <laughs> and have someone cry at the end. That's my tip. Anyone who wants to win a Hugo nomination. And you look at the winners, there's a lot of crying at the end, and a lot of little uh, tropes and cliches, and mm -hmm. the stuff of science fiction. I'm trying to remember who it was that I saw saying, subverting the trope also reifies the trope. That's right. It's sort of like how satire works. When you, when you satirize something, you say how important it is. I, I definitely remember the first time I read Dinosaur and did not know what was coming. 
that it it felt very significant and had a big impact on me and i really liked it and knowing what was coming it definitely also i felt like took took some out of the story but but i see what you're saying as well about is it worth reading you know that's the we, the question we talked about earlier is it worth rereading yeah not really. right mm. yeah and the uh an award-winning story should be something that could be reread and uh enjoyed or uh experienced in different ways as, as our lives go on Having said that, it's not, it's not been the worst thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, there have been worse things on the ballot. Yeah. <laughs> the one who's listening to this knows what I'm talking about. I just put it that way. That is, that is probably true, other than my mom. <laughs> All right, so we have talked about The Red Tower. We have talked about If You Were a Dinosaur. You have a novella in... It's a novelette, apparently. We Never Sleep, which, speaking of loading in some tropes from older science fiction and fantasy. I do. You open with the pulp writer. Yeah, just to get some background, because this is not online. It's uh, in a book called The Mammoth Book of Diesel Punk. This is a diesel punk story, and the problem with diesel punk is that there's no such thing. But you can still make a pretty big book out of it. That's right. You know, I think the book is trying to make diesel punk a thing. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, diesel punk, and it has to be in my mind, because... Uh, Nobody told me what Diesel Punk was. They just said, didn't write a story, Nick? And I you know, struggled to write the story. I guess it's a uh, further articulation of Steampunk, where Steampunk has two modes, I'd say. Steampunk Mode 1, or Mark 1, you can find with Sherry Priest, or uh, Michael Moorcock, or Lobby Didar, or you know, my favorite, uh, Gibson and Sterling, The Difference Engine. Looks at the scientific romance, the 19th century scientific romance, and uses it to critique the Industrial Revolution. And okay. Steampunk Mark 2 takes the scientific romance and says, oh boy, I love England. This is great. <laughs> Things were awesome back then. And a lot of it is like Doctor Who. Like a lot of steampunk novels are Doctor Who, essentially. They got a, a guy who runs around and drinks tea and has some tools and gadgets. And he's got like a girlfriend, like a chaste girlfriend, like a companion. And she runs around too, and they have a little banter. And then the queen tells them to do something, and they do it. Okay. And there are a lot of books like that, too. You <laughs> don't have to name them. You all know. You all got them on your sh- shelves. I actually have read very little steampunk. This is great that you're here giving this interview. That's good. Hey, I read all three of the stories that yeah. you suggested I should read. I just don't have the Very context so behind them. Sorry, Diesel Punk, if that's Steampunk, Diesel Punk is the same thing, but with Pulp Fiction in the 20s and 30s. Okay. Because you have the 20s, a very uh, expansive time in the economy. World War One was over. There was a uh, sort of an embrace to social freedom, like the flappers in the U.S., the Weimar Republic in Germany, different civil rights movements that emerged, uh, labor movement was beginning to emerge. And in the, in the 30s, you had the, the crash. And the debate can solve the problem of the uh, the collapse of capitalism. So you have in the U.S. the New Deal. In Western Europe, you have social democracy. In Germany, you've got fascism. And in the Soviet Union, you have Stalinism. Mm-hmm. So everyone tried saying, well, capitalism doesn't work. The market doesn't work. Let's use the state. Let's get big. And they all tried in different ways. I mean, I'm not trying to equate fascism, which is horrific, and Stalinism, which is horrific, with the New Deal, which is, eh, it's all right. As, as, as deals go, it's a new one. And so when, when you're thinking of diesel punk, you're thinking of sort of the settings that the writers of the 20s and 30s were imagining? Yes, because they were, you know, they were in the same way that we do this today, they were doing it then. They are saying, well, here we are in 1931 or 1929, what's going to happen next? Mm-hmm. And what's going to happen next is going to look a lot like what happened before, and we do that now. And we did that in the 60s. That's why, you know, right now we don't see a lot of, uh, a lot of books about space. Right. We see a lot of books about computers, a lot of stories about computers. You know, in the future of the internet and singularity, it's about computers, but not a lot about, you know, mining and if you read a book about mining asteroids, it seems almost old-fashioned. But in the 40s and 50s and 60s, when you knew a lot of miners, it made more sense. Mm-hmm. So my attempt with the diesel punk story, and this is not typical of me. I used to, before my kid was born, I used to write things in one draft. I'd have one idea, I'd come out, the concept would come out, and I'd write it. After 
Oliver was born, my mind kind of shattered. So I had to try four or five, <laughs> six, seven times before I got it right. And it's kind of, you know, I had to say the Pulp Writer, well, the Pulp Writer will help me organize my ideas. Okay. And I also wanted to, I'm sort of a, again, I'm a postmodernist and a reactionary. I'm reactionary to the extent where I think steampunk or diesel punk should be a kind of alternative history. Yes. That, that, and that there's a point of departure, something happened that changed it to make a steampunk thing reality. And not just, oh, but I like monocles and dirigibles and robots. Mm-hmm. So I try to focus on a moment, and the moment, this is not really a spoiler, because it's, it's in the title, Diesel Punk, right? So I, I thought the life of Rudolph Diesel, who invented the diesel engine. A very interesting life, very interesting death. And my thought was, what if the, the death, and there are conspiracy theories around this too, so it's also a secret history, not just an alternative history. What if some weird theory about his death was true? And that helped me blow everything up. And then, you know, you, you talked about this in the, or on Twitter, I guess you said, you make like stories that take place in factories, which I do. It was mostly, I read this, and then I immediately got to the Red Tower, which opens talking about this this bright red factory, and I said, oh, okay. I love factories. going to get two factories. The amount of book of factory fiction should be coming up next. <laughs> but, you know, that's how, that's how our influence technology is. You know, when technology changed people's lives, it first changed in the workplace. Mm-hmm. You know, you had computers in the workplace, but we had them at home. You had fancy phones, like mobile phones for workers. When I was a kid in high school, my journalism teacher brought in her, his wife, who uh, worked for a radio station and sold advertising, and she had a phone in her car. And we all went out to the parking lot to look at the phone in the car. That was part of like our little adventure. I'm old. I'm an old person. So we had to check this mobile phone. Yeah, it was huge. Mm-hmm. It was like eight bucks a minute you know, to, to work the thing, but mm-hmm. it made sense for her to have it. And now, of course, uh, you know, we all have there you that are, are smartphones that are either, can do more than even our own PCs could do 10 years ago. But the workplace comes first, technology-wise. So I was just trying to deal with that. I was trying to deal with the issues of diesel of the pulp era, which often involved the workplace taking over or gadgets taking over and, and dehumanizing people. Mm-hmm. And the story involves that kind of thing, but not just saying dehumanizing is terrible, because I, I would hope at this point, if you, didn't, if you haven't figured that out already, there, there's no hope for you. you know? <laughs> so my, my interest was in trying to show, I don't know if I have or not, you can tell me if I have, don't tell me, uh, why someone might want to be dehumanized. Because okay. there, there, there are benefits to it. Mm-hmm. Right, there are benefits to being half a person as opposed to a whole person. Mm-hmm. For example, we can talk about things. Uh, you know, if I meet you on the street, Jonah, I don't have to say, Jonah, tell me what you're really all about. What are your What are your core values? I can say, Hey, you seen any good movies lately? The Avengers. Oh, now I know all about you because you thought The Avengers was a good movie. Yeah. So our conversations are mediated by the media, by technology, and we see this all the time online. People will say things like, uh, "Well, you can't tell sarcasm online." Jonah, I bet you can tell emotions online. I bet if you text your wife saying, you say, how are you, love? She writes back, fine, with not a capital F and no period. What does that mean? <laughs> She's not fine, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> we certainly have tells, both in text messages and at least sometimes online. Although there are certainly plenty of cases where you get the signals crossed, yeah. either online or in person. So. Right. so are you seeing the dehumanizing that you were... I mean, I, I enjoyed and was surprised by the way that dehumanization is presented as, as also potentially a positive in the yeah. story. Mm-hmm. Was your point there that it allows a certain amount of flattening and additional commonality? Like, is that I what bet. you've been, you've been driving at? What I've been trying to do, and again, I may or may not have succeeded. It's not up to me to say whether I have or not. Was some create a story that you can read more than one way. And that's going to be more than once. Sort of going back to our theme of what makes a good story. Mm-hmm. I think a good story is one you can read more than once and have a discussion about. So like in a simple way, you may have read as a kid the story of the lady or the tiger. I did not. 
Well, it's a story about this guy who has cheated on his girlfriend who is a princess in this magical kingdom. And the punishment is that he's dragged to the Colosseum and is given two doors. Behind one door is a tiger who will, you know, consume him. And behind the other door is the woman with whom he was cheating. So he can go off with this lady who's really nice and sexy. So what he does, this guy, is look at the woman that he spurned, thinking that perhaps, deep down, she might still love him. And she knows behind what door is the tiger. And she makes a gesture toward one of the doors. I'm not told which one. And he goes over to open a door. The end. Now, that's a very simple story, and we give it to the kids so they can figure out ambiguity. Because if, if the story ended either way, it's very, very disappointing. It opens the door, the tiger eats him. Eh, that's the end. No story. What's the story? What's the lesson? Revenge is great. <laughs> you know, maybe it's the other door. He opens it. The lady's there. What's the lesson? Love is a pain in the ass. No solution, really. Then what happens? Mm-hmm. I told this story to some kids years ago when I was teaching like a little fantasy story for kids thing, and uh, it was a bunch of girls. Uh, women and girls are told to be writers and told to be creative, uh, and then when they get into the publishing industry, they're, they're shut up on. Uh, so it's one of those weird contradictions socially. But there was uh, literally a room full of 14-year-old girls, and I told them the story. They'd never heard of it either. And, they, and I said, what do you think happened? Like, kill him! <laughs> kill him! Tiger! It's got to be the tiger. Like, no, there's no ending. No, it's got to be the tiger. That story sucks. But the story is great because it creates that reaction. And again, one going back to the Red Tower, one that you would have different thoughts about at different points in your life and different points in your most recent relationship. That's right. So it makes the story worth rereading. And it's a very simple story. It's not a great story, but it's good to expose the kids to get this kind of sense. And I don't think I made the choices stark in We Never Sleep, but my hope was that there'd be some discussion, uh, this internal discussion by readers thinking, oh, what does this mean? What's going on here? Mm-hmm. And what choices have I made that might be similar to the choices these characters have made? And what choices might I avoid to avoid these characters? And what will I look like 100 years from now? Because one thing about Diesel Punk and Steampunk is it takes place in a notional past. You can suggest wrong turns or suggest the possibilities of other turns. Right. Futuristic SF can't really do, unless there's time travel involved or that kind of thing. But the idea of just going into space and, you know, having society much like our own society. One reason why I don't read a lot of space-based fiction is that it's based too closely on the Navy. Mm. Mm-hmm. And if things change radically... So I think that our species has different physiologies because of genetic manipulation to survive in space or because of hyperkinetic lifespans, because of cryogenic suspension. The idea that everybody just popped up and be just like the Navy of the 18th century is weird to me. Speaking of assumptions about what the, the average person is, assumptions about what the average institution once we get. Like, why wouldn't there be corporations? Why wouldn't there be a CEO who can be recalled? Mm-hmm. or who's in charge of things, or a board of directors. Why would it be a communist commune or a kibbutz in space? And I'm sure there are plenty of books that have these things, but they're, they're an exception. Each episode closes with a memory of a significant book. The right book at the right time, an interesting find, or just something that stuck around. Jonah, you're not going to like this one either, <laughs> is my guess. Um, but of course, The Red Tower is obviously one, since we were talking about it before. Um, right. But I, so I really enjoy, and I go back to it over and over again, it is called The Masonic Dream Engine by Tom Metzger. That's T-H-O-M Metzger. Some, sometimes his byline is T-H period Metzger. That's M-E-T-Z-G-E-R. And this is in Flurb, F-L-U-R-B, which is Rudy Wicker's magazine, uh, which is basically Rudy Wicker's pals, giving him stories and essays. And The Masonic Dream Engine is basically about the history of America as seen through Freemasonry. Okay. And uh, it is written like an essay and possibly is an essay, but also reads like fiction and has all these weird asides. And this is sort of my, uh, the postmodern element that's not my reactionary element. And then it's just really, really powerful. And I, it's almost like a litmus test I can use. I can tell people when we talk and they ask for a recommendation, I'll give them this recommendation and see what I get next day from email. <laughs> if I get no email, they get passed. If I get an email back, they failed because email is invariably, uh, could you explain that to me? 
Could you explain? <laughs> could you explain the story to me? And, and there's no explanation needed because it's basically it's very straightforward. Even though it's full of these tricks and uh, asides and weird allusions, it is extremely straightforward. Basically, this this guy Tom Esker is a myth of some sort in real life. As my understanding, he's a religious person, and this is something that is. Com- this idea of a Masonic, which is unusual, right? this, this concept of the Illuminati or, or Masonry being uh, implicated in discovery and creation of America. But he hoots it in a way that's more serious and less plot-driven, less thriller than most stories about this, like the Da Vinci Code or something, or the Nick Cage movie about the Constitution, the right. version of Independence, or an or Alice book about the Constitution. Very good story, and I recommend that everyone read The Masonic Dream Engine by Tom Metzger, which might be T.H. period Metzger in Flurb. It looks like it is available online, so I will include a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at J. Sutton Morse. The show is on Twitter at KingCabbageCast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.